live from Springfield, Ohio, it's Voices in My Head, the official podcast of Rick James. I am Rick Lee James, and you're listening to Voices in My Head. If you hear this voice today, do not turn in the window. Welcome back again to Voices in My Head. This is episode number 31, part two of my conversation with Ben DeBono from the Sci-Fi Christian Podcast. We're calling this Going Catholic because that's exactly what Ben DeBono did. I've been receiving a lot of great comments from you about the first half of this episode, which doesn't always happen that quickly. I I do get a lot of comments from people, but uh, I've especially had some comments from folks just saying um, how nice it is for them to have some of their questions about Catholicism answered. So I'm really excited to be able to bring you part two of that interview today. Just a few things, and then we're going to get right into that interview. Um, and I, I really appreciate Ben being on the show. But I just wanted to remind you that nominations are still open for just a few more days for the podcast awards. If you go to podcast awards. Dot com, And if you feel like nominating voices in my head, I would appreciate it. Now, I don't want your vote if you don't think that the show is worthy. There's actually a lot of spaces on there for some very excellent podcasts. I even put a few links on my website to some of my favorite shows. And um, so I certainly want uh, the best person to win. But I would appreciate any votes if you think that this podcast has been something worthwhile of your time and might be worthwhile of others. Um, They not only give some great prizes to the winners, but it's also a chance to have a little bit more um, visibility on the internet. So thank you very much for those of you who might be um, nominating Voices in My Head. I've been working very hard on this podcast this year, and I appreciate you. Thank you so much. I also want to remind you that the live DVD is in the works. It's on its way. Um, we are getting closer. I talked to Media Explosion this week, and they are ready to put the audio to the video. And uh, I'm really excited about that. So we're just waiting on the final master, and uh, that should be done very quickly. So I don't know, folks. Maybe maybe we'll be having this new DVD by Christmas. I hope. We'll see. But I'll let you know more as that comes along. Also, do want to remind you to follow us on Twitter. If you're a fan of Voices in My Head, just go to Voices in My Head P. That is my Twitter name. If you want to do anything at Voices in My Head P or hashtag Voices in My Head P, just let me know. You can answer question of the week there every week. And uh, you can also give me any suggestions for the podcast that you may have. I always appreciate that. Um, I want to thank again. We got some more donations this week. And I just want to thank our donors for for listening. Thank you for supporting and being a part of this podcast. And um, with that in mind about listeners, and uh, I I really want to find a way to get everybody more involved. Uh, The phone line has not been used much at all at 937-505-0162. I encourage you to go to that and answer question of the week. By the way, last week's question of the week is going to be the question for this week as well um, because I didn't know the interview was going to go into two and uh, I didn't have a new guest to ask a new question to this week. So last week's question is the same one, but we are going to get into something about that in just a moment. But as a way to include listeners and also sell Celebrate 50 podcasts, which is coming up very quickly. By my estimation, the weekend of December 14th, December 15th, somewhere in that range, is going to be our 50th show. And um, 
I, in order to uh, to do this, I, I'm still trying to work out exactly um, all the details, but I'd like to do a live show and uh, have one that you listeners can call in, and we can talk about maybe some of your favorite episodes or just whatever's on your mind, because I'd love to hear the voices in your head and what's going on in your life, and you can actually be a part of the show that week. But if we don't get several people saying they're interested, um, I don't want to go through all the trouble it will take to do that kind of live show. So let me tell you what I'm thinking about right now. If you have Skype or you have a cell phone, you can and call a number that I will give you as we get closer to time. I'll have some links up on my website. My plan is right now on December 14th, um, which by the way, I, I said that wrong. December 14th is not a weekend, but December 14th is when I would like to try to record the 50th show. Um, if at 9 o'clock... PM, and I know that's in the evening, but we do have listeners from around the globe in different places. So 9 o'clock PM Eastern Standard Time. Um, I would like to try to do a live call-in show, and we would do that over Skype. So I would give you my Skype phone number as we get closer to time, and uh, I'd also give you the Skype username so you can wait in a window, and we'd have a waiting area because I don't want everybody talking at one time because we wouldn't be able to, to get your information very well. But I hope to try the first ever live call-in show on December 14th. Go ahead and mark your calendar. December 14th, 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. That's what time it is here in Springfield, Ohio. 9 o'clock. So um, if you're interested in that, you know, send me a Twitter post. Send me an email. uh, Call the hotline. Let me know. I want to know how many people we have interested. So that's that, and uh, before we go any further, I do want to handle question of the week real quick, and I know I already told you that there is no question of the week, and that's true, there is no new question of the week, but I do have something pertaining to question of the week to share with you today. So here we go with this week's kind of question of the week. So let's have that wonderful theme song. Question of the week. Okay, well, I went to the website and noticed we had a new comment this week, and it's not from this question of the week. Um, The question of the week from last week, which is also this week, was who is your favorite fictional villain, and we got some really great answers for that. Um, But from September 21st show, um, we actually had a question of the week that was what is your favorite band from the 1960s, and uh, we had a listener that wrote in, and I just wanted to go ahead and read his entry. So we'll have something for question of the week, even though it's an old question. Uh, But Mark Cummins wrote, Uh, The question was, uh, what's your favorite band of the 1960s? And Mark Cummins uh, wrote, Love so many of the bands of the 60s, but it's just no contest. Paul, John, Ringo, and George. Beatles forever, he says. And I gotta be honest with you, I can't really argue. I do love the Beatles. So uh, that was short, sweet, to the point, but that's all there is for Question of the Week this week. Question of the Week. Well, without any further hesitation, we're going to get on with the rest of last week's interview. My friend Ben DeBono from the Sci-Fi Christian Podcast, Going Catholic, and we're hopefully going to be answering a lot of your questions about the Catholic Church as we go through this. Thanks again for the feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please go to iTunes and leave a review on the Voices in My Head page. Uh, And I don't know why my dog is barking upstairs. But anyway, uh, I'll talk to you guys, well... Now, because I'm talking on the interview with Ben DeBono. Enjoy the rest of this week's episode. Oh, this is the thought I had, too, and we're talking about things like, you know, science, evolution, whatever. 
I, it gets back to what I was saying before about a potentially scandalous statement about the Bible is not a perfect book. And let me I want to clarify that a little more, saying it's not perfect if you're trying to make it into a science textbook. It's not the perfect right. book for that. It's not perfect if you want to turn it into a uh, mathematical journal or something. That's just not the category. And, and so often we miss that these books of the Bible are are not all written in the same genre of literature at all. And um, right. so so often we get hung up on these you know modern postmodern categories that just weren't even in the thought process of the writers who were writing a book of faith, you know, and and was was passed down tra- by tradition for so much longer than uh, you know before it was even written down. It was passed down orally. So I always think, like, how many times can you tell a story, you know, to a few people before a few of the details get changed? But but what's important about the story, hopefully, is remaining intact, you know. And and I I think what is important is not this this strict literalism of this has to be a science book and it has to go this way. But the important thing is what is this saying about God and what is this saying about our journey of faith? And and sometimes we can just be, you know, too too literalist minded and that that can be a Catholic and Protestant thing together that we need to work on, I think. So Absolutely. Like, and you know, in the case of a book like Genesis, you mentioned genre, well there's two or three significant genre changes within that book itself. Right. You know, from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, we see a genre change, and then you hit uh, Genesis 12, and Abraham enters the story, and there, there's definitive genre change there as well. Yeah. So, you know, these are complicated texts. We need to remember that they were written thousands of years ago, and then, like you said, passed down, edited together, in the case of the Old Testament, and... This isn't like going down to Barnes and Noble and buying the latest Stephen King novel. Right. And, you know, you just sit down and, and you can read it because it was written for a 21st century audience. Exactly. Uh, having that healthy respect for what you're reading, I think, is very important for yeah. interpretation. Well, and, and if you're going to get too literal about things, then you know, between chapter one and two, you're already messed up because the at- accounts of creation are different. You know, <laughs> absolutely. Like, true. You don't absolutely. have to get you don't have to get two chapters into the Bible to contradict yourself. It's just like you yeah. know, if, if you're going to be that strict. But I, I'll have to share this kind of fun story real fast before we move on that I found on this topic. Um, it said uh, one of the most recent and interesting cases of uh, Catholic scholarship and education in the field of science is that of Monsignor Georges Lemaitre, I think is how you say it. I'm not a very good French reader, but um, he was a Belgian priest who proposed the Big Bang Theory, which is very interesting that a Catholic priest actually proposed that theory. And uh, when he proposed his theory, Einstein rejected it, causing Monsignor Lemaitre to write him and saying, your math is correct, but your physics is abominable. Um <laughs> And eventually, Einstein came to accept his theory, which I always find that very interesting that, you know, some of the great strides even in science and our thinking, you know, it's not been hindered by Catholics, but it's actually maybe been moved along by them in some ways and trying to help us think. So Yeah, this is a case where we're all stuck on Galileo. <laughs> uh, you know, we got to realize that was a long time ago. The church has moved on. The church has apologized for what happened there. Right. <laughs> You know, we're not burning people at the stake for having science textbooks. <laughs> take that science, which is you know, <laughs> take that science. <laughs> that's by the way, that's one of the best segments ever on your show. Is take that. Oh, it's so much fun. Uh, yeah. Um, well, let's go on to misconception number five. 
take that indulgences. No, um, <laughs> mis- misconception number five is indulgences let you pay to have your sins forgiven. Oh man, this is a complicated one um, <laughs> because there's so much confusion about you know what an indulgence is, and then we get the history of indulgences gets really confusing. Uh, so let me maybe start with the Reformation uh, because. Part of what sparked the Reformation is that Luther sees the selling of indulgences, which is kind of the misperception you're talking about, is actually taking place then. And that really upsets him. And rightly so. This is another area where we see historical abuses. Uh, what an indulgence is, just to give a little theological background, maybe I started theology and started with the history instead. Uh, so forgive my poor structuring here of answering this question. I'll pay you for an indulgence and you can forgive me. Uh, basically, an indulgence kind of comes out of the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. And the purgatory, really all purgatory is, is saying that those of us who die imperfect, most of us, uh, need to be purified before we finally enter into the glory of heaven. Now, how that purification works, how long it takes, whether it's kind of the medieval version of purgatory, where we're all, you know, in this kind of barren wasteland, working off our sin for a long time, or whether it's an instantaneous thing, all of that's open to interpretation. But again, Catholic doctrine sets up the boundaries and says some kind of purification must, must take place. So all an indulgence is, is it is a good work, which we would say comes through the power of the Holy Spirit in our life, that helps to purify us here on earth. Now it gets a little more complicated because uh, when you bring in the Catholic doctrine of the Church, which says we're all connected, we can do those good works and pray for each other and help contribute to each other's purification, is what Catholic theology would say. So indulgence, you know, that's kind of a funky word to have attached to it, uh, and I think it's in some ways unhelpful. But all we're talking about here is purification, whether it's for yourself or for your loved ones who have passed on, praying for their purification, uh, something along those lines. So that's all an indulgence is. In the Reformation era, uh, we have this Catholic guy named John Petzl, I believe that's, I'm getting his name right, who is going around and actually selling indulgences. And he has this clever little poem where he says, every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory uh, springs. So basically, hand over 50 bucks or whatever the going rate would have been, and grandma gets out of purgatory. Uh, Now, this is horrible. (laughs) And this is a horrible use of the theology. And Martin Luther rightly comes against it. Now, it has been condemned by the Church. Uh, this is not done anymore. Uh, you, you do not pay to get Grandma out of purgatory. The only place where monetary value would even enter into the equation is that, you know, a work of charity could be a good work that contributes to your purification, but that's not buying God off. That's through self-sacrifice in a monetary sense. You are becoming sanctified and purified uh, in your Christian journey. So this is another case where we have to acknowledge the abuse in the past, but also say, let's move on. It's not 
the 16th century anymore, uh, and Catholic doctrine has certainly advanced and moved past some of those abuses that existed at the time of the Reformation. Uh, that's good, because if I wanted to buy one, would I have to use a euro, or would American money work? Or... <laughs> that's the way of exchange for an <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, like, what what pleases God more? That's the question, you know, which form of money? Um, probably right. probably American, because we say his name on the money, so... There you go, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, it's funny when you mention that, and, and it's, I, I don't think people realize that 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 sort of practice of selling, you know, like that actually has been condemned by the church. And it sounds like a TV evangelist, quite honestly. I mean, oh, yeah. It's like, yeah. oh, send, send in your money now and and uh, we'll do this for you. God will bless you, you know. <laughs> and uh, once, once again... a great comparison because once, you have good theology that's being corrupted by bad people. Right. And, yeah. and, and once again, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, you know, when you think of how different Catholicism and Protestantism is. And I wish that buzzer on my dryer would quit going off. It keeps uh, going off every few minutes. <laughs> I can't hear it on my end. So oh, well, that's I good. I, not picking up on the re- recording. I have, well, listeners, if you've heard a buzz, that's the third time it's gone off. I think my dryer is like, adding an extra buzz today for some reason. But anyway, <laughs> I know you're podcasting, so I'm just going to make a lot of noise. So. Yeah. <laughs> Well, um, but I, I want to say, too, it's interesting. One thing that I have found lacking sometimes, I think, in a lot of churches I've been in, is just this whole idea that um, that Jesus does tell us to proclaim to each other, your sins are forgiven, you know, and, and he tells that to his disciples. And that's a beautiful thing. It's it's not so much that we're God and we get to decide, but I really think there is some amazing healing that comes when when we actually are Christ to each other. And and this gets back into some of the confession stuff we talked about earlier. But the idea that we actually get to tell a fellow brother or sister in Christ, maybe who is racked by guilt, who needs to know that God loves them still, that we have this provision as a community together that we get to speak on behalf of God and say, you know what, you are forgiven. Your sins um, are given to Him as you confess. And um, and it's something so much more than than just, hey, here's 50 bucks, get me out, you know, <laughs> type thing. So, and, and, I, and I love that. I think that's a beautiful thing that we need to, to do more of than what we do is, is reminding each other that we are a forgiven people, that, that Christ died for us, you know. Um, well, number four, we're just plugging away through here today, but uh, number four, misconception. Uh, priests are more likely to be pedophiles. And uh, that this is kind of a, um, a touchy subject right now, but b- before you kind of make your comment on this, if you don't mind, I want to say something uh, on that. Um, because I think this is one of the most dangerous myths concerning Catholics and and maybe even just of ministers at all. Because I, I think all of us can get painted with a broad paintbrush. And let's face it, there was a time when you could say, you know, you're a minister and people felt like you were a safe person to be with. And um, partially because of the age we live in and uh, even a few stories get blown up and they get national coverage and stuff... Um, it, it is a concern to me that that ministers are getting a tarnish on their reputation from a few people who have abused their position. And um, and recently in a book, I did a little research. Uh, it was 
it's actually titled Pedophiles and Priests. Um, they do an extensive study, and um, it, it says uh, the, it's really the only one of its kind that I could find. It took a look at the pedophile statistics of over 2,200 priests, and it found that only 0.03% of all Catholic clergy were involved in any pedophilia matter, guilty or not. This number is actually very low, according to the Counter Pedophilia Investigative Unit, who reports that children are more likely to be victims of pedophile activity at school, with nearly a 14% of students estimated to be molested by a member of the school staff, which is also terrifying to me <laughs> when I think about that. But I, I just wondered what your what your thoughts were on that matter, because that definitely is this uh, a very dangerous and tragic misconception. Um, yeah. You know, certainly we have to acknowledge uh, that over the last 10, 15, 20 years, however long this has been in the prominent part of the public conversation, that there have been incredible evils done mm. by some of the priesthood. And I think we also have to acknowledge that at times the Church's response and handling of this issue has been inadequate right. and evil. Uh, so there's no, there's nobody, no credible person's going to come out and claim that people in the church have been above guilt mm -hmm. uh, and above reproach on all matters of this issue. What I would say, though, is that the church has recognized those errors and has sought to correct them. Pope Benedict has made a point of meeting personally with many, many of the, the victims of the pedophile abuses and apologizing to them and hearing their stories and, and just loving them, you know, not with any agenda to get them back in the church or anything like that, but just meeting with them to, to show them that he loves them and he cares about what they've gone through. Uh, and that's just an incredible gesture. Uh, I think that we have to, too, take into account the statistics you cited, but this is a very rare thing that takes place. It does not make it excusable. Right. In any sense, uh, it doesn't mean that the church is excused in how it's handled some of this, but it is rare, and we need to be careful not to blow it out of proportion, not to say that individual cases should could be blown out of proportion, but the extent of it can be blown out of proportion, in the sense of saying this is a widespread problem, this is taking place all over the Catholic Church. No, it's not, um, and I think that we're at risk of sounding a bit defensive as a Catholic. Some of that perception is coming uh, from an anti-Catholic bias that can exist in the right. media and it, in our society that wants to paint Catholics as child molesters. Now, it's our own fault for giving them ammunition, uh, but that's certainly not the case. And there are many, many wonderful priests uh, out there who love children, um, who are there to protect them, take care of them, and don't deserve to be associated with the evil acts of a few horrible human beings. And we and we tend to, for some reason, just you know, um, paint everybody with a broad stroke, you know, right. one paintbrush. And it, it it would be just as wrong to say that every person who practices Islam is a terrorist that wants to kill everybody yeah. around them. Uh, and, absolutely. Which is a but but even that gets said. And so, uh, just needless to say, it, this is evil. It's tragedy. It's it's always um, it's always a distortion 
of um, of what God wants us to be. Anytime any sort of pedophilia or anything like that goes on, there's never any excuse for that. It's definitely not a joking matter. Um, but at the same time, let's let's all be careful not not to paint everybody with the same brush. I mean, it would it would almost be like you know saying um, you know I'm I'm never gonna go to Target ever again because there's uh, you know in in one state there was a bad employee that stole money you know <laughs> and right. and it's like well that must mean every single worker at Target is uh, is corrupt and evil and steals money you know and it's it's kind of yeah. like let's let's not um let's not paint the entire body of Christ with one paintbrush and then um even asking that question as hard as it is like how do we how do we bring those people who are even guilty back into the fellowship in some way in a way how how do we be redemptive and how do we invite them back to their humanity so to speak you know and um it's it's a very very difficult thing but I, but i think that's very important that that is a misconception that priests are going to be more likely to be pedophiles or something so um which which leads into number 3 about catholic priests can't get married which is is sort of a yes no thing i wonder if you have any thoughts on that being that um being that you and i are both married people and uh you know you're you're converting and you're coming from the uh perspective of someone who's been a baptist minister with a family uh what what are your thoughts on this well just to kind of lay out the, the church's teaching, when you become a priest, if you are unmarried, um, you take a vow of celibacy at that point. Uh, and so you, assuming that you're a priest for the rest of your life, uh, would never get married. And you, you are committed to that life of celibacy. Now, there are exceptions to this rule, especially in the case of ministers from another tradition, uh, for example, if an Anglican priest converts, and, and Anglican priests are allowed to be married, and in the case of Anglican priests converting to Catholicism, if they wish to remain in the priesthood within the Catholic Church, uh, they're allowed to be married and be priests at the same time. Mm-hmm. Now, the commitment they would make is that if their spouse was to pass on, uh, that they would from that point forward live a life of celibacy. Mm-hmm. But there are married priests out there. And that really gets to the point of what exactly is the Catholic teaching here. Mm-hmm. The Catholic teaching is not that it is immoral for priests to be married. This is a discipline. It's not an issue of morality. So it is even theoretically possible that at some point the Church could change its mind on this and say, priests go ahead and you can be married and have families and all this great stuff. So we're not talking about Catholics have the position that it's wrong or sinful for pastors to be married. I think where some of this is coming from, and I can certainly empathize with this as somebody who's in ministry and married and having a family, and you likely can as well, is that it's very hard to be in ministry and have a family. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you have a lot of pressure on you both to take care of your home uh, and to take care of your, your family in terms of your church family, and there's a lot of pressure there for pastors who are married. Uh, and we've seen in the Protestant world many, many families be destroyed by the pressures of ministry. Uh, by no means all, and you know, like we were just talking about, I don't want to paint with a broad brush. Mm-hmm. But I think we do need to recognize that there's a danger there and that it is difficult to be married. And 
to be in ministry. And uh, Apostle Paul comments on this in Corinthians, where he says, I wish all of you were, were as I am. He's not laying out an issue of morality, but he is saying, look, if you're married and you're trying to do this ministry thing, it's tough. Mm-hmm. And you're going you're gonna to be pulled in a lot of different directions. So I think that the Catholic discipline of priestly celibacy is really an acknowledgement of that and the desire to have our pastors be focused exclusively uh, on their ministry. And it's really a gift both to the pastor and, and, and to the church. Uh, and it really makes entering the priesthood much more of a sacrifice. Mm. You know, you, you look at your priest in your local parish, and you know, this is somebody who's given up a lot yeah. to be where he is. Uh, so I have a lot of admiration for those in holy orders, including our monastic brothers and sisters mm. who enter into a celibate life for the sake of the church. Sure. And and I'd have to say, too, I this is probably one of the things that I would struggle with most for ministers, I think, having been on both sides. Um, I speak as a person not only who's married now, but I'm also a person who has been divorced and was divorced while in ministry and um, ha- have seen both sides and uh, have have been a part of a, a church that was very compassionate and loving and helping me through that time that, um, you know, when, when my first marriage ended and I was just destroyed uh, the way that they helped me through it. Uh, but I, I have to say a lot of the... I think a lot of... Um, I don't want to place blame, but a lot of the problems... It, that ended my first marriage was was probably stemming from some things in the church that were just too difficult, maybe on my first wife, and uh, so and I'd have to say at the same time, as hard as it is to be in ministry with a family, uh, it's extremely hard to be in ministry without a family too. And uh, when when I when I felt clear that God was leading me to be married again, um, it, it was partially through that, and and I I can't tell you how much I've appreciated um, my wife uh, just being able to be a sounding board and you know sometimes I feel like you know pastors don't have any pastors you know (laughs) and sometimes the spouse can be that and um, I you know I it's obviously not my place but I, I do have a lot of empathy as well for for priests that have given that up and I do question sometimes you know, I wonder how necessary that is. You know, when when we when Paul even says, you know, um, if if a person is is needing to be married, you know, if if they, um, you know, can't, can't resist their urges or whatever, um, and there's different teachings about that. We can get into a lot of different ones, but um, you know, my I do have a lot of empathy for that at the same time because I've been in ministry as a single person and I've been in ministry as a married person, and uh, I. I personally find it much more helpful uh, to have a spouse that's there to help and and uh, kind of co-minister along, so to speak. But anyway, that's just my thoughts. Absolutely. So, um, misconception number two. Um, I feel like we should lead up to a drum roll with number one, but anyway, um, number two. <laughs> um, misconception is the church added books to the Bible, which I love this one. That's hilarious to me. <laughs> but, uh, uh, go go for it, Ben. What's your thoughts on this? Yeah, the canon has a complicated history. I, I think we were alluding to this a bit earlier, that in the early years of the church, there were a lot of different canons floating around. There were some with more books, there were some with less books. So, 
how do we know what the canon is? Well, where this gets complicated is that around the 4th, 5th century, the Church met in a variety of regional councils and decided we need to get this canon issue settled. Um, and they decided on the Catholic canon as it exists today. And the Pope commented on this and said, yes, this is good, uh, and that's how it remained for the next thousand years or so. Now, let me emphasize one thing I said. These were regional councils. In Catholic doctrine, for doctrine to be official, it has to be decided at an ecumenical council, which is a worldwide council, uh, something like Vatican II. That would be the most recent ecumenical council. So the canon was never actually declared at an ecumenical council. The reason for that is that ecumenical councils only address issues that are controversial and a problem. Once these regional councils had kind of decided the matter and it wasn't really an issue anymore, there was no reason for the canon to be addressed at an ecumenical council. So that's why it was kind of left as is. Flash forward to the Reformation. And Martin Luther is challenging several books in the Bible, not only the Deuterocanon books that are in the Catholic Bible, not in the Protestant Bible. He was also challenging books like Revelation and James and Second uh, Peter and Hebrews and, and several books that are in the Protestant New Testament. So Martin Luther was kind of going wild with uh, mm-hmm. reforming the canon. Yeah. Now, to be fair, the other reformist, John Calvin, was far more consistent with his canon than Luther was. So I don't want to uh, claim that all reformers were, you know, quite as enthusiastic as Martin Luther was with reimagining the canon. <clears throat> but at this point, the Council of Trent, which was an ecumenical council, met and officially declared the Catholic canon as it had been for the last thousand years. This is where the misperception comes in, because what it looks like is taking place is that the Catholic Church has never had these books officially as part of the canon, and then Luther takes them out, and Trent responds, or Luther, Luther uh, starts the Reformation, and Trent responds by getting angry and adding books into the canon to refute Martin Luther. That's what the perception is. But factually, what really happened was that the canon had been decided, it just hadn't been made official. Trent wasn't deciding anything new. It and even in its decree, it simply referred back to previous decisions and said, we're in agreement with what was decided way back when. So there was really no adding of books to the Bible. It's also interesting to note that even at the beginning of the Reformation, Martin Luther was all in favor of the Deuteronomy canon books, and it wasn't until later that he decided to take them out. Hmm. Um, so this certainly it's a complicated issue. I'm trying to speak in a way that is... Uh, fair to the Protestant position, so I won't go off on my uh, biased partisan uh, <laughs> analysis of this whole issue. Right. But to be sure, this wasn't an issue. Uh, it simply doesn't add up historically to say that Catholics added these books after the Reformation. Right. And that's that's getting it completely backwards. And you know, I it's funny to me too. I'm, I think about the Book of James, which um, you know Luther really wanted to have out of the Bible. <laughs> you know? Yeah, but a little straw is how and, he described it. And I, and I think it's interesting that James is one of those books, from what I understand of the authorship, unlike 
Paul, who you know would would go on these journeys and long term ministry for him in one place was maybe a year, year and a half, you know. And yeah. James seems to be one of these pastors that is in there day in day out working with the people. Is actually ahead of a church in in where he's at. And um, I find it very interesting that James is a corrective sometimes that. It, it does take works too, you know. Like let's let's not just think that this whole thing is just a a mental exercise in faith. We actually need to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this world, you know. And and uh, to go out and that faith without works is dead. And I find it very interesting that that anybody would think that you know the Catholics just added a whole bunch of books, and in fact Protestants. Right took them away you know <laughs> and um and there and there is merit to those i mean i i don't know about you but when i was in college we had to read you know the, the bible in its complete form the apocrypha and everything and uh, i remember still being amazed at some of the things that i was never taught you know it's like wow this is they ought to put this in the Bible, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Book of Wisdom just it includes incredible messianic prophecy. Uh, when you read it, it's really kind of striking. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, certainly wherever we land on the canonicity of those books, there, there's certainly value in them, and it's a shame that more Protestants haven't been exposed to them. Right. Well, uh, we're we're down to number one here today, and I don't know if this is even a misconception, and I, I didn't know exactly how to put this into words, so maybe this will just be number one, um, maybe this is a Protestant misconception, or I, maybe it's not even a misconception about Catholics, but I want to discuss the presence of Jesus in the Lord's table, and uh, the Lord's Supper, and what that means, so... If we have a drum roll, you know, here we are at number one. Um, and again, I I don't know if this is a misconception as much as just a very fascinating discussion point. Which I even had a discussion about the Lord's Supper and Christ's presence in it because uh, last week with a person in my church, um, I lead music at my church, and on Saturday mornings we have a practice with our band. And um, I started during devotional time uh, serving uh, communion because I, I feel like, honestly, it's something that's extremely neglected in our tradition, and I feel like it should be the focal point of our worship. So I've started doing that with our worship team, you know, and saying, yeah. let's, let's do this together. Um, but let's talk for a minute about the the real presence of Christ in communion because I think that's a, a, a great talking point for us today. Yeah, first let me, maybe the place to start with this is what the Catholics actually believe about the real presence and how does this all work. So, in the Gospels, at a couple points, Jesus says, I, uh, this is my body, this is my blood. He says that at the Last Supper, and then earlier in, I believe, John 6, he says that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, uh, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. And Catholics read those, and we take them literally. Hmm. Uh, especially in John 6, it's very interesting, uh, because one of the objections that people throw out is, well, Jesus also said, you know, I'm the door. Do you think he's literally a door? No. But in the John 6 narrative, what happens is he says this incredible statement, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. And most of his followers leave. They get mm. up and leave. Yeah. Nobody does that when he says, I'm the door. This is a hard, hard teaching, I think. Who can accept it? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
you know, you don't see any of the disciples uh, saying, oh, crap, we can't believe in you because you're a door. You know, <laughs> so certainly the, certainly the people listening to him there in John 6, it would appear take him seriously. And if he's speaking metaphorically, he has every chance in the world uh, to correct them. And he doesn't. Hmm. He lets the teaching stand. Now, make of that what you will. Uh, that's simply the scriptural facts. Right. Uh, Catholics would say that means that Christ is literally present in the Eucharist. Now, what does that mean? Well, he is present in a mysterious sense. We do believe that when the priest blesses the communion uh, wine, and the chalice, and the, the host, uh, the bread, that those literally become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. We do say that the accidents, that is the physical properties of the, the wine and the bread, do not change, so they don't physically become flesh and blood, but they are really flesh, <clears throat> excuse me, they are really flesh and blood in a mysterious and spiritual sense that we can't comprehend, but that also isn't just metaphorical. But they, Jesus is truly present in the Eucharist. Hmm. Now, to get to maybe the misconception of all of this, one of the big misconceptions that Protestants can sometimes have about this is that Catholics are re-sacrificing Jesus at every Eucharist. Hmm. Uh, because we say, well, his body and blood are present here, and so, therefore, his one sacrifice on, on the cross wasn't adequate, and we need to have that done again and again and again and again. What Catholics would actually say is that absolutely what Jesus did on the cross is accurate, and that in the moment of the Eucharist, that sacrifice, that once-for-all sacrifice, is made present in the communion table. So again, kind of like with the saints, where we talk about how there's this different view of time, and we're present with those who have gone before us. Once again, we have kind of a different view of time that takes place within Catholic theology, where, yes, this event took place 2,000 years ago, but it's also present right now. Hmm. Not in the sense of being redone, but in that we are made present there, or it is made present here, or however that works, again, there's a lot of mystery, but the body and blood of Christ are present with us in the Eucharist. Hmm. Um, one one of my friends um, who was actually on the show last week, he's a great author, which if, if you've never read anything by him, uh, Brian Zond, um, wrote a fantastic book called Unconditional, which is about forgiveness, um, but he, he was my guest last week on the show. And um, in one of his sermons, he made this statement, because his church is a Protestant church that does weekly communion. They get together, and that's the culmination of the service every week, is the Lord's table. And uh, I, he he said something that I just thought was a, a wonderful way of thinking about the Lord's table. He said, you know, when, when we have a, a venom that is poisoning us, uh, he said, what do you use to make the anti-venom? He said, well, you, you have to use the venom itself that something about that is transformed and is actually turned from the thing that's poisoning you into the thing that's bringing you healing. And he said, if you think of sin that way, and Jesus' blood as the thing that is being turned into the anti-venom, he said, the Lord's table is the way that we accept, that we take into our bodies this inoculation, so to speak. It's the way that we, you know, ingest the cure, you know. And I um, I, I don't know, I, I really appreciated what he said about that, but... 
the conversation that I had um, with a person in my church the other day after we had done communion, and he works with a lot of Catholic people at a hospital in town, and he said, man, I just don't get what they mean about that, you know, the real presence of Jesus being in there. And I yeah. said, I said, well, God forbid we actually believe Christ is present with us, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, that he's actually here. He said, I believe that, you know, and, and uh, I mean, the, the the misconception is you would say that, you know, physically this turns into actual real blood, that if you put it under a microscope, this is now blood, you know, or whatever. But it, there is this metaphorical, mysterious sense about the real presence of Jesus. And, and I do believe in that, you know, and I, and I believe in it when we walk in the door. I believe that right now in this room, whether it's here or where you are, Christ is present with us, you know. And I don't, I don't know that we always want to acknowledge that or believe that, but there is something mysterious and wonderful and true. And, uh, and I, I believe he is present with us in communion. And however, our theology is shaped um i don't again i don't think we're we're saying that different of things i think we're just maybe uh interpreting each other wrongly or something uh yeah. in what we're saying about it but uh well anything else to say about that one because i do want to hit on vatican too and this is definitely going to be a two-parter on the podcast this week. <laughs> yeah, when you and i get together we talk for a long time like, yeah yeah yeah, I guess, yeah i'm enjoying it but um well, let's let's look as we uh, are are starting to wrap up a little bit. Um, I know you wanted to talk about Vatican II because there have been a, a lot of uh, changes in the Catholic Church, uh, and a lot of them have happened through Vatican II that I don't think a lot of people are aware of. Um, unlike, or maybe like, a lot of other institutions in the world, it seems like the word hasn't gotten out or something, you know, that <laughs> that things have, have actually changed in a lot of ways since Vatican II. So maybe let's talk a little bit about what that is today, um, because maybe some people don't even know what the Second Vatican Council was, or even the First Vatican Council. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, and this is, another, this is an issue I could monologue on for another hour and a half, so I'll restrain <laughs> myself and keep it brief. But Vatican II, you know, I was kind of describing this whole ecumenical council thing earlier when we were talking about uh, the deuterocanonical books in the Bible. Vatican II was the most recent ecumenical council. So all the church gets together, they meet over a period of several years. This took place, I believe, from 1962 to 1967. I might be off by a year or so, but I'm pretty close on the dates. And it was really a time for the Church to say, how do we, as the Church, interact with the modern world? That was the central question that was being asked at Vatican II. Do we resist the modern world in the sense of we kind of have a fortress mentality as a Church? You know, do we open ourselves up to it? How do we interact with uh, other Protestant or other Christian denominations? You know, how does this all work? Our world is changing here in the middle of the 20th century. What What is our response as a church to that? Now, obviously, to give the full answer to that would be incredibly complicated, but let me just hit on a couple of key points. Uh, first, you saw some modernizations within the church itself. So prior to Vatican II, the Mass was in Latin. 
after Vatican II, we now get to have it in our own languages. So you see some accommodations to the modern world, uh, just in more minor things like that. But where it really becomes relevant for our conversation is that Vatican II made a strong ecumenical statement. Now, let me just define the word ecumenical. Uh, ecumenical just really means worldwide, and so when we talk about ecumenical work in this sense, what we're talking about is the work to reunite in Christian communities and work through our differences. So if I use the word ecumenism or ecumenical dialogue or anything like that, that's what I'm talking about. It's those efforts to work through our differences as Christians. Vatican II committed the Catholic Church to doing that and said we need to be committed to working through these divisions of the past. And it is a scandal for the Church to be divided. It is unacceptable for the body of Christ uh, to not be one as we are commanded to be. And the fact that we're going around, you know, bad-mouthing each other or even claiming that the other side isn't true Christians, mm. that's unacceptable. Right. So part of Vatican II's declaration on this is it acknowledged that, you know, our Protestant brothers and sisters are exactly that. They're our brothers and sisters. Right. We exist together in an imperfect communion, is the way Vatican II puts it. We exist through a shared baptism in a union with Christ. Our, or our union is fractured by our divisions, and we need to work through that. So, 50 years now have gone by. Actually, this year is the 50th anniversary of the start of Vatican Council. So I'm at least right on the beginning date. It was 1962 when it started. Uh, So this is the 50th anniversary of Vatican, the start of Vatican Council. So over the last 50 years, there have been lots of official dialogues that have taken place between the Catholic Church and Protestant denominations. Um, One of the most famous results was the joint declaration on justification between the Lutherans and the Catholic Church at the end of the 20th century, Hmm. which basically says, you know, we still have some minor issues that we disagree on in regards to justification, but in the broad strokes, we're saying the same thing, but in different ways. We have misunderstood each other in the past. We need to be more generous in our acceptance of one another's interpretation, because they don't contradict. In fact, they complement. They're highlighting different aspects of the same truth. So we've had some incredible advances. And then the last thing I'll mention, um, before I stop monologuing here, (laughs) is that also in the mid-90s, John Paul II published a papal encyclical, which is a kind of a letter that he writes to all the Catholics in the world, called Ut Unum Sint, which is Latin for that they may all be one. Hmm. And in that encyclical, it is an absolutely incredible read. Uh, I, I'd encourage everyone to go out and, and find a copy. You can get it for free on the Vatican website, or if you want it in hardback, you can order it from Amazon. Uh, in that encyclical, he says the Catholic Church is irrevocably committed to ecumenical work. In other words, we're not going to stop until we have overcome these horrible divisions. Hmm. And he goes to the extent of saying, I recognize that my position as the Pope is one of the big sticking points, and I'm even willing to put that up for debate and reconsider how papal authority looks books and works for the sake of unity. So really making some huge sacrifices and saying, you know what, this is important to me, papal authority matters, but 
unity is more important, and let's put that first and work towards that as the church. It's an incredible document. Awesome. Hey, sorry, dude. <laughs> my, my no dog, I was listening. My dog was barking, and I had to, to let the dog in. So. <laughs> hey, I know how that works. <laughs> um, no, I, that's good stuff, though. And I, I wanted to touch on, too, another thing that I think, um, at least my understanding, and you can maybe correct me on this if my understanding is wrong, but um, one, one emphasis that really came out in, in Vatican II um, other than um, celebrating the Mass in the vernacular of wherever you are, you know, <laughs> being able yeah. to, English people could actually understand this, um, was also that, that the Church is all the baptized, and there was a new emphasis on the role of laity or, or non-ordained persons in the life of the Church, too. And, uh, and it was just, you know, maybe maybe that was always there, but I think it was re-emphasized um, that it's not all up, to the priest, you know, that we're not, they're not magical people <laughs> that um, are for some reason more blessed than anyone else in the body of Christ, and that, um, you know, you, you can actually see laity participating in things now that I think was relegated only to the clergy before, like even in, in assisting and administering um, the Catholic, uh, or the, the sacraments, or proclaiming scriptures, um uh, taking communion to the sick and those that are homebound and, you know, even conducting seminars and things like that um, yep. on preparing to receive the sacraments. So I, I think it's it's actually um, helped the church to to really be the church more and not just lay it in the hands of a few ministers, which is, you know, I think sadly the sin of a lot of Protestant churches. We put everything on the pastor and uh, and and thus the church... The people in the church don't always take part in the body of Christ so much because, like, oh, that's the pastor's job, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but is is my is my understanding pretty accurate on that? I mean, I think that's what I've uh, read and understood. Yeah. So. Yeah, a absolutely. In fact, um, one of the things my wife and I are going through right now is a process called RCIA, Rite of Initiation of Catholic Adults. So, <clears throat> when non-Catholics want to enter the church, uh, they go through RCIA. And that was something instituted at Vatican II. And it's really almost all done by laity. Now, in our parish, it's a little bit smaller parish, so the priest is involved to some extent, but he's even not the leader uh, of this. So it's really a, a laity-led program hmm. designed to initiate adults into the Catholic Church. And so you see things like that, you know, to really... Where the lady are given a, a huge responsibility of instruction and uh, care and uh, walking with people in their journey towards Catholicism, and that's just one example of how all that's taking place. So yeah, absolutely, you see a huge move towards what you're talking about. Hmm. Well, that's great. Um, well, I and I and I remember that was one thing in church history that we studied, you know, years ago. Now that I remember. Being like, huh? That's interesting about Vatican II, and, and that was that was really a lot of uh, my misconceptions, I guess. You know, education can be a wonderful thing to help uh, kind of burst balloons of of falsity, <laughs> and yes. uh, and that that's one thing that does help in a big way. But um, gosh, you know what? I think we're to the end of my list of things that I wanted to talk about today, and the things that. Uh, that you were wanting to talk about as well, unless there was anything else that you uh, that you didn't touch on that you kind of wanted to today. Let me just add one one closing thought on, on these ecumenical dialogues. Sure, yeah. 
that it's worth talking about, not only because it's interesting and important, but because there ha- these are, a lot of these conversations are official. And I would encourage all of our listeners, whether you're Protestant, Catholic, to get involved with grassroots ecumenical dialogue. And really, right, that's what you and I are doing right now. You're a Protestant, I'm a Catholic. We're coming together and talking through these issues, listening to each other, seeking to overcome misunderstandings and misconceptions. Mm. Be willing to do that with your, your Catholic and Protestant brothers and sisters. If you're a Catholic, um, go listen to your Protestant friends. Find out what they really believe. Uh, don't just take for granted the misconceptions you might have about Protestantism, and, and certainly vice versa. And then the last thing I'd say is that as all of these dialogues have been going on for many, many years and continue to go on, we all need to be praying for them. Hmm. Uh, because this is incredibly important work. They're working through very difficult issues. Uh, it's slow going. Uh, there's a lot of sticking points, and it's not easy. You know, it, it, in my studies, I've had a chance to talk to some people who've been involved with this, and, and it is a, a slow process, but it's also very, very important. Hmm. So I just encourage all of our listeners, regardless of where you're coming down, to be praying for uh, these dialogues to take place that, uh, so that we can fulfill our mission as a church and overcome these scandalous divisions. Right. This is a, one of those areas where the word needs to get out, because not enough people know that these things are taking place uh, on either side. Both Catholic and Protestants are often ignorant of this. And so let's overcome that ignorance, and let's really commit to praying for the unity of the Church and the success of these dialogues. So I guess all I should ask as far as that, should we pray to the saints to marry your God about this? <laughs> I would say all of the above, of course. <laughs> uh, or should we share the prayer request in circles at church, too, you know? <laughs> all that. Yeah, you could probably throw that one in there, too. <laughs> um, and, and I wanted to add, too, that, you know, I obviously I don't get to be in Catholic worship services as much as, honestly, I would like to. But um, when I had uh, Christian Life and Ministry uh, which was a, a class I took in college, um, I, and I hate to keep referring everything back to when I was being educated, you know. But um, but when I think about that, um, we would always start our class with basically what was uh, you know the beginning of a mass, you know, the Lord be with you and also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the you know. And so I can sit. Thankfully, because of my training, I can go to a Catholic service and pretty much not miss a beat when I go in <laughs> because awesome. of how well that we structured and. And I've discussed this with with my pastor and other pastors before that that we find when we are um, fortunate enough to be able to be in on a service like that, um, it's like wow, do these people even realize the gold mine they have of what they're saying? You know, like like these are wonderful prayers. These are things we need oh, yeah. to be praying about. And I think by that same token, a lot of times people that have come to us from the Catholic Church. Um, are looking at us sometimes in Protestantism and going, don't you guys realize the gold mine you have here? Like this is, <laughs> we're not hearing this over there. This is good. And so there is this yeah. common ground that I think both of us, as we come together, we can start seeing. Wow, I really believe we need each other, you know. And um, so I, I'm just very grateful for you to be able to come on and do this, um, the podcast today, and just be able to to discuss some of these things because. In certain regions of the country, still, it's one of those huge issues that's, you know, well, they're not Christians, they're Catholics, and 
Um, yeah. I just I want to get the word out to a certain extent in, in whatever way I can and say, hey, let's let's nip some of these things in the bud and uh, and acknowledge uh, our our heritage together and our fellowship in the body of Christ together. So well, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on, share my story, and and uh, talk about some of the, these great issues with you. So sure. thank you very much. And also, I want to say thank you personally for your support uh, of me as I've gone through this process. You know, uh, I'm not going to name names, but it would just suffice to say that not everybody has been terribly enthusiastic right. um, in this process. So having Protestant friends like you who can say, hey, I might not be making the same jump, but I'm thrilled with what God's doing in your life. It's just incredibly encouraging, and that's just been a huge blessing to me. So thank you very much for that. Well, uh, well you're welcome. And I, I just have to say I'm grateful any time that people are following the wind of the Spirit. <laughs> you know? yeah, absolutely. Because I, I, I honestly feel like if... if if we saw more of that, we would see more authentic faith lived out. I, I think that sometimes people think that only ministers are people who get called, you know, to go to certain places or move different areas. And the fact is, you know, the word call in Scripture is the, is the same word for invitation. And for that invitation to a journey, we're all called there. And we have to go where God's leading or else um, it can be detrimental to our journey. I mean, it really can stop the journey short of where God calls us to be. So thank you uh, for being responsive to that and just going where you felt God was leading. So that's all there is. Um, well, I want to make a, one more quick recommendation that that Ben is on the Sci-Fi Christian Podcast. And uh, they, if you haven't ever listened to them before, they have a backlog of episodes going to well over a year ago. Um, it's always fun to listen to. It's always entertaining, and uh, I, I appreciate them. I'm hoping one of these days I'll be able to get Matt on the podcast, but you know that seems to be um, almost like trying to turn water into wine to uh, get him to <laughs> respond sometimes. But <laughs> but he's he's great, and I appreciate you guys so much. So we're going to end the recording right here. Ben DeBono, thank you for being one of the voices in my head this week. Uh, thanks, Rick. Well, that's all I've got for you this week on Voices in My Head. I hope you enjoy Going Catholic with Ben DeBono. Uh, can't thank him enough for being on the show. I've had uh, more fun than I've had in a very long time. And uh, I just uh, so appreciate him and uh, his willingness to follow God through this next journey of his life. So I wish him all the best, and uh, hopefully we'll get to hear from him and Matt, his co-host as well, maybe in the coming days on the show. Got some uh, some great episodes coming up for you. Uh, next week, my guest is going to be me. Actually, I'm going to be sharing a sermon with you that I preached just this past weekend in North Vernon, Indiana, and I uh, hope you'll enjoy that, and uh, it's, it's I don't know what else to say. I guess that's it. If you're enjoying Voices in My Head, go to iTunes, leave us a review, and uh, let us know what you're thinking of the show. It really does help, and uh, I appreciate so much when you take time to do that. Also, don't forget, you can still donate. Um, still need to raise about, I don't know, something like $400 for next year's uh, podcast fees for things that I have to pay yearly, annually. So even if it's just five bucks, uh, something like that, it really all always helps out tremendously and it all adds up. So thank you so much for listening. Please tell a friend about Voices in My Head and we'll see you next week on episode number 42. God bless. You've been listening to Voices in My Head, the official podcast of Rick Lee James. 
If you'd like to know more about me, my ministry, my music, my life, go to my website at rickleejames.com. You can also download my free mobile app from iTunes and on the Android Marketplace. And I'd love this to be a community experience, so if you call 937-505-0162, you can leave feedback, you can give me suggestions for future shows, you can even record comments that I can play on the next podcast. So let's make this something really great together. 937-505-0162. Thank you so much for listening to Voices in My Head, the official Rick Lee James podcast. God bless.